turn to Genesis 44. Let's do that, shall we? That's our chapter for today. And uh, we've had several of these chapters where they've been 34 verses. That's kind of interesting. Not that I would assign anything to that, but it is a reasonable length to read, so we will do that. Genesis chapter 44. And we'll begin reading in verse number 1. Actually, no. I'm going to back you up to the last sentence in verse uh, of the chapter before, verse 34 of the chapter before. I just want you to get this to remind you of, the, of what's going on here because it's kind of important to uh, set the stage. And they drank, that is the brothers, and they drank and were merry with him. That's Joseph. All right, now, today's chapter. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he, that is the steward, did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, <clears throat> the men were sent away with their donkeys and they had only gone a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in, in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched. Now notice this little interconnection with this theme. Beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. Can you kind of see the fever pitch increasing as this goes on? And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack, then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? Can, can we, how can we clear ourselves God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and also he in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a brother, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him 
Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother does not go, goes not with us, we, then, we will, then will we, goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our younger brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One is left, and I said, surely, one is left, one has, one left me, and I said, surely, he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one from me also, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety, there's your surety again, for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your loving kindness to us. Thank you for your blessing, your tokens of good, even here today in allowing us to get this uh, technology remedied back there. Thank you for the men that worked on that. And, uh, but your hand of blessing also, we want to give all the praise to you. We know, Lord, when anything good is accomplished, it's for your glory. It's, we just give you the praise. And thank you now for each one who could be here today. We want to acknowledge, Lord, that you have set apart this day, and now you have led us to do so. Help us to remember that. Help us to remember why we're here, to hear your word, to see what you have for us. I pray that in the ABF hour, you bless Brother Bruce and also Brother Jerry as they bring their lessons. And here in the auditorium, I just pray, Father, that you would go with us. You have something here for each of us today. You have some reason for this, and a lot of that may be hidden to most of us. But you have have your word speaks to us in our inmost being that's what we desire and we desire the encouragement that you want for the discouraged we desire the admonition you want for the one who may need that whatever it is that we come here with needs presented to date that you might meet them and bring honor and glory to yourself in the course of this and in the services to follow today for we pray these things now in jesus holy name amen Well, I've talked to you a lot about suspense because this truly is masterful storytelling. And I have to tell you that we're not quite off the hook today. It's like it builds to its crescendo in this chapter today. I mean, really, we come to the absolute pinnacle, the absolute peak. It's like you're right on the edge of your seat, and it's like being in a 
it's like being in a musical performance where it continues to build, it continues to build, it continues to build, and you just don't know how you're going to stand it until the composer introduces that element of release. We don't get that, but I'm going to anticipate it. It happens in the next verse that we didn't read. Look at chapter 45, verse 1. Joseph could not control himself before the, all those who stood by him. Finally, we get to the place as a result of what we see in chapter 44 that Joseph believes the conditions are right. It's safe for him to reveal his identity to his brothers. And, of course, as we progress down through this, this, this third and final meeting that he has, um, it climaxes in this beautiful confession. I've mentioned to you this before. This is one of the most moving scenes. And this is what we're going to focus on today because if Joseph is convinced, this is the whole thing I want to drive at in today's lesson. If Joseph is convinced, he's finally convinced, after all of this, not only God's dealings, we never want to divorce that, but on the human level, it's also true, and we can recognize this, even allow for the fact that perhaps God is leading in, in this, more likely that's the case, but Joseph con continually has devised these tests to increase this pressure on his brothers. And he now believes that the conditions are correct. He believes they're genuine. He believes that they truly have, are ready to make this thing right and have done so, even though they don't realize they have done so in the very presence of the person that they need to make it right with. We're going to see that in the next chapter. So here's my, here's my direction in this today. How, how is it that Joseph comes to be convinced of their genuineness? And, and I, I would just lay this before you as, I think, a very practical and important topic for us. I want you to think back for a moment about your own experience, because I think it's probably true. Certainly everyone in here would profess to know Christ as Savior, and I realize that, that our experiences differ widely. But when you think back to yourself, what was the process through which God brought you to make you ready to really do business with God? Because perhaps for some of us, we kind of resisted that process for a while. I mean, you know, some people get saved right away. That's kind of maybe the exception. It does happen. But for a lot of us, it's, it's, a, it's a process, and you can look back over it and think about it, and you can remember that conviction that just built and built, and you can remember sometimes the excuses you made and the resistance that you put up. Oh, I tell you, beloved, I really remember that because I've told you before about this Christian neighbor we had and all the times that he had, had asked us if we would join him, like for an evening service at their church because ours didn't have an evening service, and I had said no. And there came a period of time in which he had kind of wisely backed off but it was during that very same period of time that conviction, that conviction was just climaxing in my own heart and life. And that afternoon, that Sunday afternoon, he had stopped by because we were both on a tidal creek and sometimes we would go on Sunday afternoons, just take the boat out and go for a ride. We'd stop and ask if he wanted to go with us. And I had already determined, you know, if he doesn't ask me today about going to church with them tonight, I'm going to have to ask him if I can go. I'm serious. It, that was exactly what was going on in my heart and mind, and then the Lord was merciful. He asked. Uh, obviously, the timing was right. But how, how is it that Joseph is convinced of their genuineness? When we're in similar situations, not just thinking about our own experience and 
the sometimes difficult, bumpy road over which we've gone to get there, to really being at the place where we're ready to do business with God and be genuine about it. What about other situations out in life? Have we ever strayed off and been sort of unwilling over a period of time to deal with that until God finally brings us back to the place that we're ready to do business with Him? It happens. In fact, let me give you a, an example in the Bible that I'm going to be utilizing a little bit. David. It's kind of high profile, isn't it? Did it happen with him? Did he get off the track anywhere? Wow, he really did. He really did. Let's just think, for example, about the situation with Bathsheba because we'll be referring to that. Did he make that right right away? That's not a trick question. No. No. No, he persisted over the period of time, essentially, in which Bathsheba was pregnant with that child. So maybe up to a year, uh, somewhere in that realm of time. But all during that period of time, thinking, think about him being out of fellowship with God. Think about Psalm 32. and We just had this somewhat recently, and he talks about the bones which thou hast broken. That, that period of time in which he was under and conviction. I bet he was ornery. There, there is no one in the world more ornery than someone under conviction, and especially a child of God under conviction. That's, that's, you're really ornery when, when that situation. So how, when, if, and if, if it's not us, if the shoe is on the other foot and we're dealing with someone like this, is there any kind of way that we can kind of gauge whether or not we think that person is sincere if they're if they say that they're ready to make something right. I think there are four things that I want to present to you in this lesson today. I don't say that this is an exhaustive list, but looking at it and also comparing the story here and also comparing it to the um, situation with David, I think you're going to find these elements that they, they are there in most of these circumstances. Now, it's not like you look at verses 1 through 5 and that's all of false security shattered. That's the first thought. It, these things kind of commingle, okay? But they are all represented there and we need some logical way to progress through this. So where I find the, the point sort of coming to the fore in the verses, I'll make the point there. But you will see some of this sort of bleed a little bit into the next. And there's nothing wrong with that. That just is sort of how it works. So this is why I read that verse at the uh, that sentence at the end of chapter 43. What happens when you think about the stage being set for this? These guys, the last thing we read about that occasion in the house of Joseph is, I mean, they're having a high time. Uh, they're finally relaxed. They've sort of tamped down this ominous thought of why is it that we're arranged around this table according to our age, and why is it that he. Benjamin has a, a portion five times larger. And they've sort of tamped all that down. And if you think about it, we do the very same thing. Many times we just sort of tell ourselves everything is going to be fine. Don't worry about it. When in reality, it's not right. God's dealing with us about something. And God was dealing with these brothers. And here they were just sort of tamping that down and building up this false security that everything was going to be fine. But you can see, certainly see the basis of it. They've had a, a smooth interview with Joseph. He's not rough and harsh with them like he was before. They have the grain. It, the Bible even gives the detail. As much as their donkeys can carry. 
That's pretty good. Hopefully that lasts them a while. They have Simeon. They've recovered Simeon. That was part of the mission. They have Benjamin. That's huge. That's probably the biggest single factor here. And if you think about it, their story is intact. Other than what we find earlier where they kind of realize that God has found out the guilt, our guilt. They've sort of pushed that back now. We, maybe we can, nah, maybe not. Maybe we're okay here. Maybe we can kind of get by. They haven't really had to deal with anything. They're out of there. They've sort of tamped down that conviction that we saw back in chapter 42. Let's just quickly review those verses so it's in your mind. Chapter 42, verse 21, Then they said one to another, this is in that encounter before, In truth we are guilty concerning our brother, that we saw the distress distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. Later in the chapter, verse 20. Nine, uh, he said to his brothers, this is when they discover the money on the way back in the sacks, my money has been put back, here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? So for a while there, they're really scared. You know, a little bit of the fear of God is in them. Not enough. They push that back now. Maybe we won't have to deal with this. Maybe we can kind of get by. But, you know, it doesn't work that way. The very next morning, they're out of there, and I bet they're doing high fives. Just think about this. I, they're out of there. They're, they clear the city limits. They're headed down the road. Oh, we're out of here. Everything's great. Look at the donkeys. We've got the food. We've got... Simeon, we got Benjamin, and that guy that we were so afraid of last time, he was kind of easy on us. Until all of a sudden, they see this guy in haste trying to overtake them, and it's the steward. They recognize him as he gets closer. You know, the sooner he gets there, then he says, what we have in this opening that we read about um, in chapter 44 Verse 5, verse 4 at the end of it, why have you repaid evil for good? It's like these guys, their hearts just sink. They have to kind of wonder, well, you know, thinking about the story of David, and um, I'm just going to give you a couple verses here, but over to chapter, you don't have to turn if you don't want, but I don't have the verses on the screen, but on um, second. Samuel chapter 11. Think about the processes that were going through David's mind, and he kind of thought, maybe I pulled this off. You remember what it was he thought he'd pulled off? Well, I mean, he kept the thing with secret, right? In fact, when he brought, sent to the army and brought Uriah the Hittite, who was Bathsheba's husband, back, and he, he tried in vain to get him drunk and to get him to go home to his wife, so that there could be some claim the child was probably his, not David's. Doesn't work. The guy has too much integrity. And finally, when he sees it isn't going to work, he sends by his very own hand, remember this, a message back to Joab, who's the general. Put him in the, four, the hottest part of the battle, right up against the wall of the city, where he'll be sure to be 
killed in battle and then and put him there and then withdraw so that it'll, there won't be any doubt about what happens. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. Now look at this. When the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Well, other than that phrase right there, you can see him kind of thinking to himself, I, I think I'm going to be okay. And this happens, I think, in our lives time and time again. We build up these false securities. We think that by our own skill, we've worked our, our, our way out of this corner. We've worked our way out of this problem. But you know something? You can't do that with God. And it's, it's an absolute illusion to think that eventually this is not going to catch up. And so that brings us to the next Self-righteousness is exposed. Well, in, in verses 6 through 8, I want you to see how they, they immediately, their first response to what the steward has to say is they howl in protest. I mean, the idea that they could be accused of such a thing. Look at this. Verse 7, why does my Lord speak such words? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. And of course, when you look down through all of this, you know, <laughs> you're thinking to yourself, well, they're professing that they could never be guilty of a crime like this. Now, in point of fact, they knew they weren't guilty of this crime, right? They knew they weren't guilty of this particular thing. But the whole way in which it comes across is, is how in the world could you think this? How in the world could we be guilty of something like that? And again, I have to tell you that this has a parallel in the life of David because remember, we ended up in that last verse of chapter 11, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So what did God do? He sent what prophet? Nathan, Nathan the prophet. And what does Nathan do? Barge right in there and say, you guilty sinner. No, he'd likely get his head lopped off doing something like that. He comes in and tells him a story. Do you remember this? What's the story? Well, the story is there were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. This is chapter 12, verse 1. Verse 2, the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and was with his children. It used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled. Are you ready for the protest? You can't do something like that. What does he say? As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. What's the next thing that Nathan says? You are the man. You see what I'm getting at? And Judah, who is the spokesman, there, there really is no better example of this than Judah this goes all the way back to this chapter that we didn't spend any time with because it, in, the, in one way it's a digression from the story of Joseph 
but in another way it's not. I told you this before, it's very important information. So you might remember that this chapter is kind of a sordid deal where it, it tells us the story of Judah's, this is a, you know, a low ebb, Judah's not at a good place in his life here. And his, his level and his, his character and his, it just, he's at a bad place. And he goes up here and his wife has died. He hasn't kept faith with his daughter-in-law because he's worried about giving her his youngest son, Sheila, because already he's done that. This is this custom of leveret marriage. He's done that with the, the second boy, Onan, and you know that's not a, really a great story, but he's wicked. The Lord kills him too. And uh, so Judah isn't real sure about this. It's hard to know exactly what's going on there. So he's, he's a little bit dishonest with Tamar. He, he, he doesn't. He says, go home, and when he's grown, I'll give you. Well, he doesn't do that. And so then here you have this story of he goes up to see his friend, and Tamar takes matters into her own hands. She goes out along the road, poses as a harlot, and three months later, it becomes apparent that she's expecting. So here's where we read verse 24. Three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant. Look at this. Here's the howl of protest. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And she was being brought out. She sent word to her father-in-law by the man to whom these belong. I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord, and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. There it is right there. See, this was, this was, the, this was the epitome of hypocrisy on, on Judah's part. He's ready to burn this girl when, in fact, he himself is the father of the child. He's, he's, he's indulged what he thinks are the services of a prostitute when it's in reality his daughter-in-law. And the howls of protest, you know. I mean, we, we don't like to admit this about ourselves, but inherently we're self-righteous. It's one of the reasons we get ourselves into trouble a lot in church is because we pounce on people thinking that what they have done is so egregiously wrong. And perhaps it is, but sometimes this is not in the spirit of humility realizing that, you know, there's a bunch of stuff like that we've all done and we just need to be careful how we go about these things and do them in the right spirit. It's a tough lesson to learn. But they're guilty of far worse, and they're about to be confronted with it. So let's move to the third of these. Foolish pride is gone. See, when, when they went out of the city, and they're backslapping and high-fiving, and they're thinking they've pulled this off. And you can almost kind of see them, perhaps it's unspoken, but you can almost kind of see them thinking to themselves, hey, you know, we're, we're sharp cookies. We, you know, we went in there and we handled this guy. He was tough. When we were there before, he was tough. But we went in there and we handled this thing. And even though we were a little on edge when we found out we were going to have dinner at his house, we, we, we got through. Hey, we, this is going to be good. We're going to go home and, and we're going to tell Dad, 100% success, A+. Maybe we can even kind of recoup a little bit of his trust and his favor. And they come to, to believe they'd pulled this stunt off. That's exactly what David thought, too. 
when we look over in 2 Samuel chapter 12, again, until Nathan comes in and says, Thou art the man, and then we get down to verse 13a in the story there in 2 Samuel 12, and it said, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. See, all of a sudden that, that bubble of pride is popped. It's better not to get that bubble all built up, but see, it's kind of inherent in Adamic nature, isn't it? Pride is just kind of inherent in Adamic nature, and the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and if, if we're not careful, the first thing you know, we've strayed off into this and got ourselves all built up, patted ourselves on the back, and we don't realize it, but we're cruising for a bruising, just like these brothers were. See, in reality, they hadn't outwitted anybody. In fact, they were so smart, they put the noose around their own neck. Look what they say. In this protest, in this howl of self-righteousness, they actually say, in verse 9, whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we all also will be my Lord's servants. I mean, they have hung themselves. Do you see this? <laughs> I don't want to go there. I don't know about you, but, you know, I just, I want to ask God to stay humble. I want to ask God to help me be one who keeps short accounts, and if I do something wrong, I want to be sensitive to it and apologize right away. I don't want to get in this shape. This is a nasty place to be. And then it, I wanted to say just a word about this because I'm sure you read this and you kind of scratch your head, you know, because we have sort of all this buildup about Joseph and we talk about the fact that there's no blemish anywhere on his record. Then you read this and you're kind of scratching your head. The servant comes out there and he talks about the cup and then Joseph later talks about the cup. So back to verse 5. Is not it... Uh, is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this he practices divination? So we read that and we go, uh-oh, not good. Joseph practices divination? Then later when Joseph brings it up himself, verse 15, he refers to it. <clears throat> what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know a man like me can indeed practice divination? All right, well, there's a couple ways to approach this. Um, one is you make the conclusion that he's in Egypt and some of that is a part of practice there and there was maybe a sense in which he was involved in some of that. You can, you can go there and you can also make the point that this is before the Mosaic Law, hundreds of years actually before the Mosaic Law, where that kind of stuff was prohibited and prescribed. So you could make, maybe make some explanation and some allowance that he's in the culture he, he's not really violating his conscience with this. Or you can go a different direction. And if you'll pardon me, maybe I'm just a, a Joseph fan, but I, I'm a little more comfortable with this direction, although the other one doesn't totally bother me. But this is the reason that I've used this word here. This is a bit of a flourish. You could also interpret this as a bit of grandstanding. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, it's meant to portray, how in the world would you ever expect to outwit me? Because, see, they didn't know who they were dealing with, right? They just knew that he was the prime minister. They knew he was an Egyptian, or they thought so. They knew he was in that culture, and what else would you expect later when Pharaoh gets ready to try to figure out his dreams? What does he do? He calls the magicians and the wise men. 
So they would expect Joseph. They had no idea he was their brother, had no idea he was a Hebrew. What else would you expect? You'd expect him being the prime minister to be right up there at the top of all of that. How are you going to outwit him? That's, I think, what this is involved with. I think that's why he chooses the cup. But either way is fine with me, but I wanted to give you those two alternatives to think about. But here's the thing i got to point out to you, and this is what's crucial, folks. The cup and Joseph's ingenuity notwithstanding, the person they really can't outsmart is God. And you know what? I can't either. And you can't either. How in the world would you ever lead yourself to believe? Foolish pride. How would you ever lead yourself to believe that you're going to get away from God? You think to yourself, how in the world did Jonah ever get on that boat? I mean, you know, I, I'm afraid enough of God that I think I'd be, a, <laughs> I might find some other way to run, but I don't think in those days I'd have gotten on a, a ship like that. To me, that's like getting on some kind of an experimental airplane and, I mean, God can get you sitting at home in your easy chair, you know? But that would give me the heebie-jeebies. How in the world would Jonah think he could get on that ship and God wouldn't catch up with him? And what a place to do it, out there in the middle where God can just tell the wind to blow and God can create a great sea creature? What do you think he was thinking when he looked into the maw of that thing? I should have never done this. Same thing David was thinking when Nathan pointed that finger at him. What a fool I was to ever think I could hide this from God and that God wouldn't find me out. They came right up to admitting that, and then they've tamped that down. Back in chapter 42, uh, if you look at what they say back there, verse 21, we looked at this earlier. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, now they know it, but they've sort of just pushed that off again. And down over in verse 23, here's what they didn't count on. See, remember, we read this detail. They didn't realize that Joseph could understand them. They're having this discussion right there in front of him. So they, they you know, even though Joseph inherently knew the truth, he knew it because he was their brother and it happened to him. But he doubly knew it because he heard what they said and knew what they were talking about and knew they were thinking that God was dealing with them. And now here's a verse we do have. The word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and of the joints and of marrow and of discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Folks, I'm telling you, this is scary stuff. So here's our last, and we have a little more to do here, so I want to keep moving. Change is obvious. This is how Joseph knows. Not just these three points that we've seen, but now there is clear evidence that this is the real stuff. They've changed. How do we know this? Well, first of all, I... Pardon the use of a big word. Um, I, I could have said unity or whatever, but solidarity. Do you, you notice this in verse um, 13? It's, it's a, it, it seems like it's a minor detail, and yet it really isn't. It, 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 
it correlates, as we've seen so many times with these parallel threads in the story, when it says, when they found that cup in, Joseph, in Benjamin's sack, and I, and I pointed out to you, you know, this is just really built. They search the first guys, in there. Second guy, not there. Third guy, not there. On down. And they go, oh, okay. Then they get to Benjamin and says, the one, the very one that really is huge. And there it is. What does it say? Then they tore they. Not one of them. All of them. This is collective grief. This is collective identity with the fact, you know the jig is up. We're in trouble here. This, this idea that we think that we've pulled this off and gotten away with this thing, this is all just blown up totally in our face. And the, the, the ironic thing about the thing, the paradox of this, if you go back to chapter 37, verse 34, it's something they had not cared about this a hoot, what they had put their father through, but when Jacob first saw that bloodied coat of many colors and bought into the lie they told him. What does it say there? Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. And those hard-hearted brothers just ignored that. Shoes on the other foot now. You don't want to go there. You don't want to get yourself in this condition because God is fully able to turn the tables on any one of us. And he does it with these guys. But they've been obdurate. They've been hard. They've been resistant. We don't want to go there. Same thing David had done. But solidarity was there. They were all together in this. They knew they were in trouble. Honesty. They know now that it's not just Joseph that knows, it's God that knows. Do you see what they say in verse number 16? There's, a, there's what the literary people call double entendre in this. It means double meaning. There's more than what you're thinking here with this. When they say, when Joseph saw Benjamin, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter, that's 43. Verse uh, 16 of our chapter 44 um, No, it's, yeah, verse 16 at the end of the verse. Um, what can we speak, or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. But see, they knew they hadn't done this. So they're not talking about that. I mean, to Joseph, in a sense, they're saying both things. But they know they haven't stolen the money again. They know they haven't stolen the cup. What they're really confessing to is the same thing they confessed to in chapter 42, verse 28. And the same thing that Numbers 32, verse 23 says, But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. I say it again, it's scary stuff. Remorse. I've said it to you before, and I just mentioned it. They, they have no thought for the grief they've put their father through. I mean, when you think of how hard-hearted that is, that just seems incredible. But I'll tell you what, they're different people now. You go back and you look at that 42 and verse 38, and this is to take Jacob's words. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you make, you would bring, him, bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. So he recalls, what had happened with Joseph and says the same thing is going to happen again if something happens with Benjamin. 
Now look who brings it up three times, Judah, who's speaking. Verse 22, he, as he tells the story, and he does this with complete accuracy, there's no embellishment, he doesn't hide anything, he tells the story exactly word for word like it is. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot go down with his father. If he should leave his father, his father would die. Verse 31, as soon as he sees the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. Verse 34, for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil. See, Joseph sees all of this, he hears all of this, and he knows they've changed because he knows that they didn't care about it before, but now they care. And not only that, they care about him now. How do I say they care about him now when he hasn't even identified himself? Because they care about Benjamin. It was the same thing. It was the exact same thing. It was an opportunity to repeat the exact same crime. They had been treacherous with respect to their brother Joseph. They sold him down into Egypt. And now here is Benjamin. And you know what? All they have to do is say, we're out of here. Too bad. You stay, we go. It's that simple. We got mouths to feed back there. Our wives are back there. Our kids are back there. Your dad's back there. We got to go. This is unfortunate, but it's too bad. They could have sold him out just like they did Joseph before. But what does Judah say at the end of the verse? And they're all together in this because he says this, God has found out the guilt of your servants, plural. Behold, we are my Lord's bondservants. You don't hear any argument with that. They all, they're all together in this thing. But we, both we also and he in whose cup hand the cup has been found. And the last thing is commitment. Two times they have the offer of freedom. The servant says it. He says, oh, no, 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 just the guy with, just the, guy with the cup. You guys, are, you guys can go. Joseph says the same thing. Oh, no, I, I, I wouldn't do that. You can go, just the guy with the cup. I've got to realize, let's just make this point real quick. There's a lot more on the line here than there was the first time they did this with Joseph. Because the first time they did this with Joseph, what did they get for that transaction? Everybody remember? How much money? 20 pieces of silver. A lot more on the line this time. It's their freedom. It's their necks. They won't do it. Twice they turn the offer down. This is commitment. They're, and this is the most, um, I, I can't say enough about this, but I just don't have time. Judah is speaking for all of them. He's willing to do whatever it takes. This is where this idea of surety comes up again. So we look at this in verse 32. For your servant became a pledge of safety. Okay, now I want you to see how this parallels to Christ. Because at that low point in the story, Judah is nowhere near being able to, to be portrayed as, as he will one day. He's a changed man. He's a different man. And he becomes surety, which means that, okay, now, who's guilty? In, now, watch this, test so you get it right. Air quotes. Who's guilty? Benjamin. He's not really guilty, but in Joseph's eyes, he's guilty. How's the only way he's going to get off the hook? If somebody takes his place and bears his punishment. This is what Jesus Christ did for you and me. Jesus is our surety. And for, for Judah to say this, I mean, this is, it's all on the line, folks. So 
we have to conclude these are the genuine hallmarks of repentance. There's a great scripture here. We don't have time. Maybe you look at it, but it gives about seven qualities by which you can identify the difference between the sorrow of the world and godly sorrow that leads to repentance, not to be repented of. But you know, the wonderful thing about it is whenever you or I or anyone comes clean, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And next week, we're going to rejoice together. We're going to get down off this crescendo of, of pressure and suspense and see the great reunion. It's going to be a great reunion with our Lord one day because he's forgiven us for our sins. Father, bless us now as we go to our next service in Jesus' name.